Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. I'm a mindless Instagram scroller, and I follow a lot of accounts that post old Twitter posts, most of them funny or tongue-in-cheek. A lot of them are about the American healthcare system, like this one from Danielle Weisber. Quote, I'm an American. I bleed red, white, and blue because something is wrong with me, but I can't afford the copay to see my doctor. Or this one from Emily Mermain. Quote, my health insurance sending me constant emails. Hi, Emily. Just want to make sure you're taking full advantage of your Blue Cross Blue Shield insurance policy. Stay healthy this fall. My health insurance when I'm trying to see a doctor because I'm dying. Hey, f*** you, LMAO. (laughs) Or this gem of a response to a headline reading. Quote, the newest version of chat GPT passed the U.S. medical licensing exam with flying colors and diagnosed a one in 100,000 condition in seconds. (laughs) And then, of course, the most rated response was, can't wait for the future when Dr. Bot can almost instantly diagnose a rare and hard to detect condition so insurance bot can deny coverage for the treatment much more efficiently. So these are obviously tongue in cheek. And if you have money and a good insurance plan in the United States, you've got pretty good health care. But of course, that's a minority of Americans. The majority are still underserved, with the poor and people of color exponentially left out of great coverage and medical care. But it wasn't inevitable that the U.S. would wind up in this situation. There were even models and alternate paths that our politicians and lawmakers implemented and explored that could have constructed a very different outcome for Americans. Our current healthcare system is the way it is because of decisions made by people at various points in the last century. America's healthcare issue is the result of a series of interconnected decisions and events and catastrophes. This episode is part five of our five C's of history. And today we are exploring contingency. I'll use Thomas Andrews and Flannery Burke's definition. 
Contingency is the idea that every historical outcome depends on a multitude of prior conditions, that each of these prior conditions depends in turn upon still other conditions, and so on. The core insight of contingency is that the world is a magnificently interconnected place. Change a single prior condition and any historical outcome could have turned out differently. So we're going to do an overview of the American health insurance system and touch on some key points along the way. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Avril. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters, and especially our fabulous Augur and Excavator level patrons, Carl, Hannah, Lauren, Colin, Edward, Iris, Susan, Denise, Agnes, Jesse, Karen, Maria, and Audrey. We can't thank you enough. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. The U.S. government has provided some kind of health benefit to certain inhabitants or citizens since its inception. For example, the Continental Congress of 1776 encouraged enlistments during the Revolutionary War by providing pensions for soldiers who were disabled. The first standalone medical facility for veterans was authorized by the federal government in 1811. Previous to that, states had provided, in varying degrees, hospital care for veterans. After the Civil War, many state veterans' homes were established. Since domiciliary care was available at all state veterans' homes, incidental medical and hospital treatment was provided for all injuries and diseases, whether or not of service origin. Indigent and disabled veterans of the Civil War, Indian Wars, Spanish-American War, and the Mexican border period, as well as discharged regular members of the armed forces, were cared for at these homes. Now, of course, you should have read our own Sarah Hanley Cousins' book, Bodies in Blue, to learn about how well these programs did or did not work and the gendered politics behind disability. But of course, the point here is that there was state and federally sponsored health care for most United States veterans. Right. Congress established a new system of veterans benefits when the United States entered World War I in 1917. The advocates for the creation of a Veterans Bureau made a pragmatic and compelling argument. They contended that establishing such an organization was not an unnecessary expansion of the government, but a crucial and morally justifiable duty. The pre-war War Risk Insurance Act had made specific commitments to provide financial and medical assistance to veterans. The advocates contended that creating a Veterans Bureau was essential to ensure that these promises were kept. Despite those arguments, some legislators argued that the proposed agency had to be limited. Some balked at the idea that the eligibility of men who had never even seen the front lines, and in some cases had been found unfit for service, would still be eligible for future benefits, including hospital care. The notion of providing unfettered universal access to benefits 
even when it was deemed practically justified for a specific group of citizens, was met with hostility as exemplified by the position of Robert Luce, a Republican from Massachusetts. He asserted the agency, quote, involves an immeasurable expense over 50 to 75 years, but also involves a long step toward that centralization of activities, which some people called socialism. But in August of 1921, an act to establish a Veterans Bureau, or VB, established a system of federally sponsored hospitals with a central office in Washington, D.C., and more than 150 regional offices. The Bureau had a multifaceted scope of responsibilities related to veterans' health care and was responsible for managing and distributing insurance benefits to veterans. It oversaw vocational education programs for veterans, and it provided actual care to veterans such as examinations, hospitalizations, and outpatient medical care. Congress passed the World War Veterans Act in June of 1924. The act expanded the eligibility for hospitalization under the Veterans Bureau, or the VB. It stipulated that all honorably discharged veterans who had served since 1897 could receive hospitalization, broadening the scope of care to include a wider range of veterans. The period following the passage of the act saw a substantial increase in the number of veterans receiving hospital treatment sponsored by the VB. The patient count grew from around 18,000 in 1924 to more than 30,000 in 1930. The act established a fundamental principle that medical care should be offered as a federally sponsored entitlement to former service members. This was a significant shift in policy, emphasizing the government's responsibility to provide medical care to veterans as part of their benefits. In 1930, the VB was merged with the Bureau of Pensions and the National Home for Disabled Volunteer Soldiers to form the Veterans Administration, or VA. And then, after World War II, there was a resurgence of public concern for former service members, leading to increased federal attention and funding for veterans' health care. Veterans' hospitals began affiliating with medical schools. Over the mid-20th century, the veterans' health care system expanded to include hospitals, nursing homes, outpatient services, and education and training for medical professionals. In 1989, the VA transitioned into the Department of Veterans Affairs, achieving cabinet status, and the administration of health services was placed under a reorganized branch, the Veterans Health Administration. More than 9 million former service members receive health care through the VHA today. Including my partner. Okay, so we've established that the federal government has provided health care to some of its citizens for a very long time. But what if you weren't a veteran? Let's jump back a bit into the progressive era. With the massive growth of cities, one of the most pressing issues was health. And the history of the development of social politics can indeed be framed as a narrative of the struggle to establish a comprehensive concept of public health. The growth of cities brought about new health risks, the concentration of people in urban areas, often in crowded and interdependent living conditions, introduced health challenges that were not as prevalent in rural settings. These risks were often hidden from plain view, much like waterborne microbes. 
The battle for a concept of public health recognized that health is not solely determined by individual choices and behaviors, but is influenced by the conditions in which people live and work, including factors like labor conditions, housing, and the overall social environment. Around 1915, the American Association of Labor Legislation, or the AALL, was lobbying state legislatures to adopt health insurance for workers. State-run health insurance had been in place in both Germany and Britain for more than 25 years and had proved successful in both countries. The AALL proposed bills took the best parts of both and combined them into a plan that could work for industrialized states. It included sick pay and medical treatment for low-income wage earners and their dependents and help with the expenses of childbirth. It also had a funeral and a death benefit. The benefits were to be half financed from employers' contributions and have to be financed by employees. And then the administration of local funds was to be controlled by both. Health insurance bills based on the AALL plans were proposed in 18 state legislatures in 1916 and 1917. However, once the U.S. entered World War I, opponents of any kind of state-mandated health insurance didn't miss an opportunity to say that the plans were, quote, made in Germany at any chance they got. U.S. doctors were one cohort that opposed state-sponsored health insurance. Unlike in Germany, where doctors professionalized within a public health care system and relied on their experience doing contract work with the state, and in Britain, where doctors almost always did some contract work, American resistance to state health insurance was a way to gain more administrative authority over their jobs, not to squash it completely. However, the strongest opposition to these health insurance plans were from commercial insurance companies. They had lobbyists in every state and town, overwhelming lawmakers with arguments against state insurance. According to historian Daniel Rogers, the Great Eastern Casualty Company of New York told all of its agents that the New York Health Insurance Bill of 1916 spelled, quote, the end of all insurance companies and agents, and to you personally, the complete wrecking of the business and connections that you have spent a lifetime building and the loss of your bread and butter. All of the proposed state bills for health insurance failed to be enacted into law. However, that did not come without fierce debate. While social insurance systems grew in Europe, there was little headway made in the United States. One plan did succeed. The Shepherd-Towner Act, officially known as the Shepherd-Towner Maternity and Infancy Protection Act, was passed in 1921 and was the first national public health program, and it was for the sole purpose of aiding children and childbearing women. The primary goal of the Shepherd-Towner Act was to provide federal funding to states for programs and initiatives that would support the health of mothers and infants. It aimed to reduce maternal and infant mortality and improve overall health outcomes in these vulnerable populations. Under the act, the federal government provided grants to individual states to establish and operate programs that focused on maternal and child health. These programs included prenatal care, infant care, nutrition education, and general health education for mothers. 
the act encouraged the expansion of public health services and the development of clinics and outreach efforts to provide health education and medical care to pregnant women and young children. Critics argued that the act represented an overreach of federal authority into matters traditionally regulated by states. Many believe that maternal and child health fell within the purview of state governments, and they were concerned about the federal government's involvement in health care. Various interest groups, including doctors and commercial insurance companies, again opposed the act over concerns that they would lose autonomy and profits. Many women's groups and clubs had lobbied hard for the passage of the Shepherd Towner Act, and federal legislators felt pressure to vote in favor of the act in 1921 because they were afraid of the massive influx of new women voters that were brought in by the passage of the 19th Amendment. However, by 1927, it was clear that women were not voting in nearly the numbers that suffragists had hoped and legislators had feared, nor were the ones that were voting doing so in obviously partisan ways. And so the act was not renewed and it expired in 1929. In response to massive labor activism and as a way to avoid the need for government oversight, some large companies began to participate in what became known as welfare capitalism, also known as industrial paternalism and rooted in the free market. This is indeed in air quotes. There's no such thing as a free market Uh, belief, right, that Americans should look to workplace benefits provided by private sector employers for protection against economic fluctuations instead of the government. Welfare capitalism was a strategy employed by some employers and businesses to resist government regulation, uh, to resist labor unions, and to resist the establishment of a comprehensive welfare state. This approach sought to maintain control over labor relations and to limit the influence of unions and government intervention in their businesses. So essentially what some employers did in order to increase productivity and to avoid complaints about larger structural issues is they began offering welfare services to their employees. And one of these incentives was often medical benefits. Business-led welfare capitalism was only common in American industries that employed skilled labor, and not all companies freely chose to provide even minor benefits to workers. The skilled trades and the unions that represented those trades, for the most part, did not allow people of color to join their ranks. This was also a time when women were explicitly barred from the skilled trades as well. Therefore, the welfare benefits those skilled tradesmen received were reserved for white men. So the benefits offered by welfare capitalists were often inconsistent and varied widely from firm to firm and only flowed to white male tradesmen and professionals. The limits of welfare capitalism became apparent during the Great Depression, when, of course, the lack of a universal social safety net became glaringly obvious. However, with the industrial ramp-up of World War II and industry's massive need for workers, many businesses turned to fringe benefits and offered more generous health plans. But yet again, these benefits flowed to the white breadwinners of families. Women and people of color were not allowed to work in the jobs that supplied these types of benefits. 
Private company employment and insurance became further enmeshed in 1943 when the Internal Revenue Service ruled that employer-based health care should be tax-free. Another law passed in 1954 and further enhanced the tax advantage of private employer insurance. Of course, there still was a lot of support for some kind of national universal health care system. Seven months into the presidency he was thrown into after Franklin D. Roosevelt died, President Truman proposed a universal national health insurance program. In his remarks to Congress, he declared, quote, millions of our citizens do not now have a full measure of opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health. Millions do not now have protection or security against the economic effects of sickness. The time has arrived for action to help them obtain the opportunity and that protection. In the past, the benefits of modern medical science have not been fully enjoyed by our citizens with any degree of equality, nor are they today, nor will they be in the future unless government is bold enough to do something about it. Now, of course, this wasn't dreamed up by Truman, but was advocated for by all kinds of reformers. The support for President Truman's proposed National Health Act was divided along ideological and interest group lines, with unions like the Congress of Industrial Organizations or the CIO strongly supporting the plan, and the American Medical Association or the AMA opposing it. And you guessed it, labeling it socialized medicine and therefore evil. But as any American is well aware, we still don't have a comprehensive universal health system. Admitting defeat, Truman wrote, quote, These skinflint loan companies who charge the people from 27 to 50 percent interest on small loans, I think they are the worst vultures we have to contend with. They and the American Medical Association are the very reason there have been such a howl about health insurance. Every president since FDR has had to have a stance on public health care. When Lyndon Johnson took office, he moved forward with a bold domestic agenda he called the Great Society. An old New Dealer himself, LBJ saw himself as building upon the legacy of Franklin E. Roosevelt's New Deal by expanding social and economic programs. As part of this vision, Johnson championed the establishment of Medicare and Medicaid, which were significant components of his Great Society agenda. Medicare extended health coverage to elderly and disabled Americans and was designed to work in conjunction with the existing Social Security program. Medicaid supplied health insurance to low-income Americans. The Great Society faced opposition from rising conservatives like Senator Barry Goldwater and then-Governor Ronald Reagan. Even as these changes were made, many Americans by this point in time saw insurance benefits as a natural benefit of paid employment, not as an anomaly or a contingent outcome of historical forces. Essentially, people with good jobs, so think white, educated, mostly male people, got health care through waged work, and almost everyone else, unskilled workers, single women, looked to the government for health care. Many people stopped questioning this system and just accepted it as the natural order of things. 
But of course, this episode is all about contingency and how every historical outcome is based on previous conditions and outcome. So at any time, different paths could have been taken, different decisions could have been made or unmade. So none of these outcomes that were tying health insurance to waged work were inevitable. In the 1970s, President Nixon did try to get a law passed that would mandate private employers to provide health insurance. So not universal care, just a strengthening of the private insurance plan. But even that was unsuccessful. But Nixon's plans, too, were contingent on other factors. Nixon's two proposed health care policy overhauls, the National Health Insurance Partnership Plan and the Comprehensive Health Insurance Plan, were both formed, advertised, and communicated to the public, not as standalone plans, but in response to the politics and health plan of Democrats in the Senate, most notably Edward Kennedy of Massachusetts. Almost on every occasion, the Nixon administration's internal conversations regarding health care were strongly driven by their desire to divert credit from Senator Kennedy's initiatives and instead focus on the president's efforts. They aimed to deflect attention away from Kennedy's health care proposals and counter the extensive media and public interest often directed toward the Massachusetts senator. As the New Deal order began to wane and the rise of neoliberalism reigned supreme, the philosophy of maximizing shareholder value became dominant and defined contribution plans such as 401ks replaced guaranteed pensions. At the same time, the average duration of employment Uh, at the same firm, decreased significantly for many workers, and many worker protections were also chipped away. In 1993, President Clinton appointed his wife, Hillary Clinton, to chair the president's task force on national health care reform. President Clinton had made health care reform a central promise during his 1992 election campaign. There was a sense of urgency to fulfill this campaign pledge, and there was substantial public support for health care reform at that time. But of course, the forces that had historically been against health care reform were still going strong. Critics of health care reform, including conservative talk radio hosts, used fear-based rhetoric to convey the idea that government intervention in health care would lead to a loss of personal freedom and government control over medical decisions. They often presented worst-case scenarios and exaggerated potential negative consequences. The insurance industry had a financial stake in the health care reform debate, and through advertising and lobbying, it sought to protect its interests and prevent reforms that might reduce the role of private insurance in health care. Throughout 1993, the Harry and Louise campaign was a significant and highly visible television advertising campaign, and it was funded by insurance lobbying groups. Um, The campaign was launched in response to the Clinton health care plan of 1993 and then subsequent uh, congressional health care reform proposals in 1994. And essentially what the ads did, it depicted Harry and Louise. They're this kind of middle-aged couple. They're sitting in their kitchen at the kitchen table. They're looking over all of these, you know, quote unquote, complex, um, you know, insurance plans And essentially, they're lamenting their concerns over this potential bureaucratic government intervention of healthcare. 
um, and essentially conveyed this kind of false idea that the proposed um, health reforms were going to lead to a loss of choice and a loss of control over their personal health care decisions. A major overhaul to the health care system didn't happen during the Clinton years, but there were some reforms. The state children's health insurance program, CHIP, was established as part of the Balanced Budget Act of 1997. This program provided health insurance coverage for children and families with low to moderate incomes who did not qualify for Medicaid, but who still lacked access to private health insurance. CHIP represented a significant expansion of health care coverage for children. It aimed to bridge the gap between Medicaid, which primarily covered low-income families, and private insurance, which could be unaffordable for many working families. It provided a safety net for children and families who were above the Medicaid income threshold but still faced financial barriers to obtaining health care coverage. However, it required state buy-in, and not all states enacted CHIP programs immediately. The experiences of the Clinton administration's health care reform efforts and the strong opposition from the insurance industry played a significant role in shaping the approach of President Barack Obama's health care plans. The Obama administration recognized that securing support from key stakeholders, including the health insurance industry, was essential to passing comprehensive health reform and compromises were made to ensure that private insurers would participate in the new insurance marketplaces created by the Affordable Care Act, or ACA. But this, of course, let down a lot of people who were still hoping for a universal public option. Mm-hmm. One of the primary objectives of the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, was to expand health insurance coverage to a larger portion of the population, including those who had been historically underserved. This included the working poor, young adults, and individuals with pre-existing conditions. While it faced significant political and policy challenges, it succeeded in expanding coverage to millions of Americans and improving protections for those with pre-existing conditions. And this time, the AMA was on board, the American Medical Association. No longer bringing up the boogeyman of socialism, the AMA supported the passage of the Affordable Care Act. However, I I do find this kind of funny. If you go to the AMA website, you'll find a post titled Timeline of AMA's Efforts to Support Health Insurance Coverage. It's a three-minute read, and it goes back to the old, old year of, checks notes, 2017. Mm. Yes. (laughs) So that's what they're touting. (laughs) Obviously, it's more complicated than that, but as an organization... The AMA has a long history of helping to prevent universal health care in America. By the time Obamacare was passed, roughly 20% of Americans already had access to medical services via federal programs like the VHA, Medicare, Medicaid, or the Children's Health Insurance Program. Passage of the ACA was dependent on a multitude of previous debates and policies. However, the ACA is new in that everybody is eligible. Um, unless you work for Hobby Lobby, to access it. And you don't have to be over 65 or under a certain income level or a veteran to get it. 
However, it is still a market-based system. It's also been chipped away at since its inception and has faced no small amount of attempts to dismantle it altogether. Since the law's enactment, Republicans have sought to repeal and replace the ACA. In 2016, holding the majority in both the Senate and the House, Republicans passed the Restoring America's Healthcare Freedom Reconciliation Act of 2015, which aimed to revoke several provisions of the ACA. However, President Barack Obama vetoed that bill on January 8, 2016. In 2016, Republicans, including President Donald Trump, campaigned on a platform of dismantling and substituting the ACA. Following their electoral victories securing the presidency, Senate, and House, Republicans made repeated attempts to repeal and replace the ACA throughout Trump's presidency, with small wins but no major overhauls. The defeat of the major repeal bills did not diminish the Republican Party's determination to do away with the ACA. The Trump administration took various actions such as discontinuing funding for outreach, seizing payments for crucial insurer subsidies, and revising regulations governing the types of insurance private insurers could offer. Additionally, it adjusted the guidelines concerning how states could structure their Medicaid programs. Toward the end of 2017, Congress approved a tax bill that got rid of the ACA's penalty for individuals without insurance. This year so 2023, House Republicans have pushed forward a series of bills that may lead to decreased health insurance expenses for specific businesses and individuals, in part by scaling back certain consumer safeguards. Instead of an outright repeal, this more nuanced endeavor might enable more employers to circumvent the fundamental benefit mandates and a majority of state regulations that are set forth by the ACA. Concurrently, the Biden administration is attempting to reverse certain health insurance regulations put in place by the Trump administration with a proposal to reinstate stricter guidelines for short-term health plans. In every nation, healthcare expenditures as a percentage of the overall economy has shown a consistent upward trajectory since the 1980s. So essentially, healthcare is getting more expensive with spending growth outpacing economic expansion. However, the United States spends nearly double on its healthcare costs over other high-income countries with robust healthcare systems. So we spend over double um, than, than countries like Canada, France, Germany, Japan, and the United Kingdom. And that really doesn't that really just mean that we that our doctors and our pharmacies they charge double, right? Like compared to those other places, they 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 charge double, but there's also just so much unregulation. Mm. You know, like you could go to one hospital and spend three thousand dollars to have a baby. You can go to another hospital and spend twenty thousand dollars to have a baby. And there's no discernible difference in the amount of care, right? Yeah. So it's just, it's yeah. still kind of like a wild, wild west. Yeah. And furthermore, people in the United States experience the worst health outcomes overall of any high income nation and are more likely to die younger and from avoidable causes than residents of peer countries. So despite the genuine challenges that many individuals encounter in the realm of health care, Along with the ongoing deliberations regarding the next steps to take, 
Republican endeavors to abolish the ACA have actually underscored a consistent sentiment expressed in polls, essentially that the majority of Americans prefer advancing towards a universal health care system rather than away from it. However, as we hope we've shown you in this tiny snapshot of the history of health insurance in the U.S., this is not a simple matter with a clear trajectory, but one that is and has always been contingent on American politics and social policy. I know this is really short and sweet, and I mean, it could have gone in a million different directions. Maybe I kept it too tight because it's just so messy. I mean, I think I think the I think. At the end of the day, the, the the main thing to come away with, and this is why I started with the VA, and I guess I should have kind of come back to it at the end, is we have socialized medicine. The VA is socialized medicine. It is medicine provided by the government and paid for by the government. Mm-hmm. It is a large uh, network of socialized medicine, right? Yeah. Um, so it it it's it it it's always been a matter of the haves and have nots right like who is quote unquote worthy of having um you know systematic universal coverage mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um and then of course this idea of getting back to i mean i mentioned it but you know really kind of bringing it home um that frames Health insurance that you get through your waged work as a quote unquote benefit for mm-hmm. your labors versus all of those quote unquote moochers and freeloaders who are, you know, sucking off the teat of the government and getting right. their health insurance through the government, right? Yeah. So again, it's this idea of the haves and the have-nots. This is yeah. the good insurance that you want to get that's through a private employer versus that <laughs> health care that you get when you're a poor person. Yeah. You, gross, yeah. right? Yeah. Which, of course, is so ridiculous because I've been on both private employer and Medicaid and damn if Medicaid wasn't so much better mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> than my private insurance, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And like there are obviously, it's not like the VA is perfect, right? Sometimes it's bloated with administration and it's slow and it's not it's not ideal. And there are some specific branches of it that are <laughs> but like Dan has now experienced the VA in Minneapolis, Twin Cities area, Buffalo area, and Vermont. And in all of those cases, they're super responsive, they're efficient, they get him the healthcare he needs, and he needs a lot of healthcare, like several trips a, a year, right? Like just for routine maintenance. And it's excellent. And so it's obviously possible and it could work for everybody because we have so many veterans who are being served by the VA, right? Like we have so many citizens who are being served by the VA. Yeah. Free choice. And obviously like not only is the issue our politics, right? But it's also our entire medical pipeline, right? Like how, how much money we charge doctors, to get medical degrees, right? Like I think it was NYU was the first medical school in the country to very recently, they don't, they no longer charge tuition for their medical programs, I believe. 
Um, but every other, yeah, this it was like new. It was like hmm. five or six well, years. Well, I mean, ago. I know that you know part of the expansion of the Great Society was to make medical schools more accessible and more affordable for more people, so that we, you know, could have, uh, you know, more doctors in rural areas and things like that. But yeah, I mean, that's definitely a problem still with our with our current system, right? And so you have, yeah. you know, medical deserts essentially where the nearest, you know, functioning hospital is over 40 minutes away or whatever, you know. Yeah. And we have doctors who did not come from elite white families who have a ton of money who just have like hundreds of thousands of 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 educational debt. Right. And so of course they need to like work in a place that can pay them X number of dollars because those places are charging their patients X number of dollars for every level of service, right? So this is like a this is a deep and complicated, as you say, issue. But it's also it's not inevitable. And I think that this historical trajectory, like this timeline, shows us that this is not inevitable in any way. And this this is right. that people are making and. <sighs> yeah, that's 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 the the core of the of the contingency, right? That that yeah. there is nothing natural, there is nothing free market about this. This is this is designed um you know, through decisions and non-decisions, right? Yeah. And at any point in time, a change in one thing could 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 have could have changed the entire system. Yeah. And maybe it still will. As always, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at dig underscore history. We're also on TikTok now, dig underscore history, or join our Facebook group, Dig History Pod Squad. If you have a comment or a question or you want to share some kind words with us, you can always email us at hello at digpodcast.org because we love listener mail. If you're an educator, we've got a compendium of episodes you can use in the classroom and free teaching resources, including lesson plans on our website, digpodcast.org. We real, oh, yeah. Oh no. Yeah. We realize that the recent changes to curriculum in states like Florida and Texas will complicate being able to use our podcast episodes in the classroom. So please reach out to us if there's something we can do to be helpful to you and your classroom. And you'll also find full bibliographies, the scripts for all of our episodes, resources, and a link to our swag store at digpodcast.org. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. Just got to get that down home Truman in there for sure. <laughs> what does skin flint mean? <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a slur. I don't know what it means literally. I, thought, I always thought it had something to do with like penis foreskin. Uh, well, let's look it up. But skin. I think I maybe I dreamed that. That's always possible. A person who spends as little money as possible. A miser. A skin flint? That don't make no sense. Sorry. That's what it is. Get your head out of the gutter. Alright. Since domiciliary care... Is that how you say that word? That's how I would say it. Area... Area... Law. Spelled, quote, the end. <coughs> Blech. Will you move closer to your microphone? I'm sure. Should I... 
Should I do the whole... Are you gonna be okay? Yeah, I just wanna hear what it sounds like if you're closer. Oh. In Britain, where doctors almost always did some contract work... Uh... Okay, I see what I see. This is um, like <laughs> it's a confusing sentence. Uh, let's see. I relied on the thing. And in Britain, doctors. Okay, let me just let me just change this up a little bit, and then it'll make sense. Okay. Um, 